welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema, the film discussion podcast where you choose it, I watch it, and we discuss it. I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us. We have a really exciting show because we're going to be taking a trip back to the 1950s to discuss a little Stanley Kubrick. Yes, the Stanley Kubrick. Now, I know when you think Stanley Kubrick, maybe the 1950s isn't exactly what you think of. I mean, we we think of like Dr. Strangelove. We think of 2001 Space Odyssey, Lockwork Orange, uh, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket. But back in the 1950s, he had a few bangers in his own right. You know, we had uh, we had Paths of Glory. I guess Spartacus came out in 1960. Well, shit, they, they filmed it in the 1950s. Um, but the film we're going to be talking about today is a little movie called The Killing. And the guest we've got to discuss it, it was his choice. It's Tyler Schwanke. He is an author slash filmmaker and all around like heist aficionado. And we're going to take a take a little dive into his work and also a dive into why he wanted to talk about this film. I'm pumped because admittedly, I had never seen this movie. I knew very little about this movie. And... What you need to know about The Killing is, as I said, it's a 1950s uh, kind of like film noir heist film. But basically, it's a story of this like veteran criminal who's basically planning to go straight, right? He wants to marry his fiance and he's got the idea for like one last heist. And so he brings together his whole team and they have the perfect plan. But because, of course, this is a film noir there's always going to be somebody that wants to come in the middle of it and mess up the whole the whole shit, right? And this film falls into that that all too familiar uh, pitfall of 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 any heist slash uh, film noir. But this is so well executed, and you can definitely see some of the greatness that Stanley Kubrick was doing even well before. He was often regarded for his masterpiece films that he did in the 60s and 70s. But this movie has been extremely influential. And the conversation that we're going to have, I even will bring up the fact that this is one of like Stanley Kubrick's favorite. I'm I'm sorry. This is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. Uh, He often cites this movie as part of the inspiration for Reservoir Dogs. And if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Uh, what else do you need to know? The movie has a, a ton of people, but the main the main driving force behind this movie is an actor by the name of uh, of Sterling Hayden. Now, in the conversation you're about to hear, which, by the way, I was extremely sick at the time, uh, but the conversation you're about to hear is that uh, the the lead actor Sterling Hayden, you know, absolutely commands the screen. Now, when I watch this movie in preparation for the conversation and then did the conversation. I must've been like drawing complete blank or the fact that I was completely sick at the time, but Sterling Hayden um, was in a ton of films. But when I think of him and I completely forgot, but we are now recording this episode or publishing this episode in December, Thanksgiving just happened. And every Thanksgiving, I like to watch the Godfather and Sterling Hayden is actually in The Godfather. He plays Captain McCluskey. He plays a crooked cop in The Godfather, which is pretty fitting because he plays a, well, a a criminal in this film. But Sterling Hayden was also in another Stanley Kubrick film, and that was Dr. Strangelove. So a lot of things that he had done, but just an absolute wonderful, wonderful actor. And I got to like send a major shout out to Tyler for recommending this film because I, it, like I said, it was the first time I had ever seen this particular Stanley Kubrick film. But, you know, I, th- I thought I knew a little bit about his back catalog. You know, I, I knew Spartacus, I knew Paths of Glory, but The Killing, this was brand new. And this was just his third film, if memory serves. I think I said that. Um, he also did Lolita. Dude, I mean, the resume for Stanley Kubrick, it goes on and on and on, right? But this, you could definitely see you know, some of the the genius behind uh, his work. And the film was co-written by uh, Jim Thompson, who we also collaborated with on uh, Paths of Glory. So all of that to say, thank you to Tyler for recommending this film. And to you, listener, definitely check it out. But let's just 
dive right on into the conversation with Tyler. Again, Tyler, thank you. How's it going, man? Welcome to the show. I appreciate you uh, you joining us tonight. Of course. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk Kubrick, talk heist films. You know, it's so funny because we reached out uh, to each other a couple of months ago. And anytime anybody's like, yeah, I want to talk Kubrick. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And <laughs> sure. admittedly, I eh, maybe my own like I thought I knew Kubrick, but I didn't know 1950s Kubrick. The different Kubrick, right? It's like to- I mean, so different. You, yeah, when you think about kind of his influence and like, I think like for me, like the biggest influence I see in like modern movies was like, um, oh, what was that one with uh, Florence Pugh, uh, Midsummer, right? Yeah, yeah. And like I just like I remember in theaters. Me and my buddy went and I was just like, we were just like shocked when the whole audience was shocked. You know, there was just some scenes in there and that's another movie. But I just remember like with the camera movement and the slowness and stuff. And I was like, oh, OK, this is like Kubrick, you know, and if you had watched The Killing, you wouldn't be like, oh, this is Kubrick. You know, like it, it, it you know, almost, you know, this I feel like this film almost influences like Tarantino's first film, you know, oh and my Tar- God. yeah, right. And like yeah. Tarantino never gets Kubrick references, you know, you just, you just wouldn't. So I think that really shows like how diverse like directors get to be. I was talking with somebody else about this and sorry, I'm, I know I'm going on a tangent, but you know, directors like directors get to like, kind of like flex their muscle, right. When it comes to uh, like telling stories and like what exactly like what stories they want to tell, like Kubrick, right. We've got, we're going to talk about his heist movie. It's about, you know, kind of a, thugs and gangsters and and also you know crooked cops and stuff and then you have like a science fiction you have him doing Stephen King right you've got the horror films you know and like in like a literary sense when it comes to books and you know I'm I'm new to that world but already there's so much about like discussion about like your brand and like what your audience expects and it's like oh but like do you have to deliver the same thing every time and like one example I, I share is like and i know this is a big one and, and kind of a rare but like spielberg right in 93 he had jurassic park and schindler's list come out like <laughs> who gets to do that <laughs> right like who gets to like tell two wildly different stories and of course both of them are like what they're just they're iconic classics so um i don't know i just i always get like kind of jealous when i talk like kind of book world versus movie world and what and and i know that like some like screenwriters and today it's it's not the same right you you get like saft brothers they get to do their own thing um you know but a lot of people kind of get just kind of churned into this you know hollywood system or they have to you know do pretty much just you know kind of what the studio asks what the producers want but i just get i get so jealous and um so circle back to our main point we were talking about but like kubrick right it's just like yeah this is like totally a different um Different Stanley Kubrick, but also it was really kind of his first uh, flexing his directorial muscle. You know, he um, I, I rewatched this last week and I finally watched the Criterion, uh, you know, bonus features. And, you know, they were talking, um, I was going to look it up, um, who the producer was. And he was talking about he basically he knew Stanley Kubrick from like the scene in New York and they partnered up. They wanted to make something. And um, they weren't really sure what Kubrick had just done his movie before that was like, what was it called? Something like Kiss, Kiss, Kiss Angel, something like that. But he so his movie he did before showed promise, but it wasn't great. Okay, and like it was interesting because on this special feature, the the producer that was talking about Kubrick's film saying that like he shot the whole thing. like they didn't record dialogue, like they did all the dialogue in post, you know, and, and yeah. it was, it was a uh, great camera movement, which you see in the killing. And, you know, he had his you know kind of sense of photography and, 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 you know, what he wanted to show visually, but he didn't really have uh, the dialogue down and, uh, you know, didn't have too much of a story. It was kind of more of a, a his visual calling card, but he still hadn't figured out how to tell a story yet. So this producer teamed up with him and they're like, you know, let's let's make something, but they had no idea what. So they went and found the novel uh, by Lionel White that this movie is ba- that the killing is based off. Uh, was it Clean Slate? Yep, yep. So 
they went and the way the producer tells this story, like he literally that night, they were like, yep, let's make a movie. This producer walked into the bookstore, grabbed <laughs> this novel and was like, oh, okay, cool. This is going to be the perfect movie. So I don't know if it was that easy, but, um, you know, <laughs> and then kind of, no big deal. Yeah, yeah like, no big deal. No, just go to yeah. the bookstore, just go to the bookstore and just grab any, any book. And then, you know, so then they went from there and uh, they got uh, Jim Thompson to do some additional um, dialogue. And he was, um, you know, he was a, a kind of a pulp, a pulp um, writer back in the 50s who was, who was very popular. And uh, but, yeah, they were just kind of like kind of figuring it out. And, and Kubrick really kind of just I think he just kind of jumped into the story and they really liked how the novel was told back from these, like kind of these flashbacks and from different point of views and, you know, had Rashomon references and it's been like 15 years since I've watched that movie, but you know, you could definitely <laughs> see that. I mean, I think if you, I think if you watch it once, even though you don't remember a lot of it, you do remember like, okay, it's like that Rashomon's iconic because it's one, one scenario, and I don't even remember what the scenario is, but I know it's told five different ways, right? And then you get yep. a different viewpoint, and then it's – I can't remember. Like, do they do they tell you what actually happened, or is it up to the audience to just kind of decide what, what they believe happens? I don't remember. Ooh. Uh, uh, now you're you're going back to, my, like, my college fucking, like, film studies. Well, I know. Uh, Except, yeah. Well, that's when I watched it. Yeah, I yep. watched – you know, that's when I watched a Kurosawa film. So who knows? <laughs> I'm sure, well, sure a lot of people know, but we don't know. Um, we'll see how it goes. But, Who knows? Yeah, For all we know, yeah. this might be like a whole like backlog of the fact that, you know what? We're going to do like film studies and yeah, We won't even yeah. talk about the killing. We won't even get there. We're going to just yeah. keep diving back and back. But, um, you know, so they liked that uh, kind of storytelling. And um, I think through kind of the story of the novel and how they wanted to tell it, Kubrick kind of just, you know, tailored his, his, his way. And he, he, you know, he set the camera on the dolly. He got it moving quite a bit. Um, it's, it was, it was cool. They were doing the special features. They were showing like some, you know, behind the scenes photos and you can see the the sound stages and, you know, how the, they would have the, the camera on the dolly over the move through the room. So it was like you were moving through the wall as the characters went into different rooms. And that's something that's, you know, we're pretty used to now. And, you know, I, but I, I don't think, I mean, there's another interview with Sterling Hayden who played Johnny Clay, the, the, the main our, protagonist. Our, our, and, yeah. Our protagonist. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was reflecting on, this is like 30 years later, 25 years later, it's like in the seventies. And he was reflecting back on that. And he was talking about how just like different it was to have like the camera move like that and how kind of exciting and different it was. And, um, you know, nobody really knew who Kubrick was. He wasn't Stanley Kubrick at the time. You know, he was just kind of this, this dude from New York. And it was his every- third film. It was his, yeah. yeah. And everybody thought of him kind of as this beatnik because <laughs> he went yeah. where he didn't wear a tie and he, you know, and he just kind of, I think he smoked a lot. And anyway, it's just, it's, it's interesting when they, you reflect back on somebody who we know now, right? Uh, <laughs> what Kubrick's going to become, but. You know, they were kind of just just kind of figuring it out. And so even though it is his third film, one of the things that I love about heist movies and I find always so interesting is, you know, how they always say, like with filmmakers, like in film school, so many people go in and make horror movies. Right. Because you have your kind of built in audience for horror and it's cheap to make and there's a return to be made, you know, basically just on marketing. I feel like heist movies are the same way. There's a people know what they're expecting. It's uh, you know, there's a built-in audience for it. So you have you have your tropes and you can kind of mess around with it and put your own little stamp on it, right? And even though it was his third film, it was like his first film that really showed, I think, what he could do. Um, you know, that's kind of common. Like I said, we were talking about, you know, we mentioned Tarantino. That was, you know, that's considered to be his first film. Uh Wes Anderson did Bottle Rocket, yeah. uh, Mike, Michael Mann did Thief, uh, the Wachowskis did Bound. You know, it's it's really quite quite crazy about how you think about kind of the different you know films and and the the big heavies. You know, who who got their start just making ice movies. If you could maybe take a second, introduce yourself. Yeah, who am I? Who is this guy just (laughs) spouting off all this stuff? Sure. Uh, I already introduced you in the intro, but like a little backstory of what it is that that you're into and and your work, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. So I'm Tyler Schwanke. I live in Minneapolis. Um, 
I, uh, my background is in filmmaking. I went to film school in college. I did a lot of student films, um, kind of traveled to, uh, around the country a little bit, um, with, with those student films, uh, graduated and, you know, tried to get into, into production. And I did, um, you know, I spent about six months or so uh, looking for production work. And most of what I found was, you know, that you get paid and free lunch and credit. Uh, so, and it was fun for a while. Um, but, you know, I was an adult. I was at a, I had a college degree and, you know, I didn't want to live in my parents' basement uh, anymore. I mean, it was finished. It was nice, but it was still my parents' house. And, you know, I wanted to, to get married and get a house and all that stuff. So, I um, got what I call, you know, quote unquote, uh, a day job, a real job. And uh, so I, you know, kept trying to want to stay in film and a buddy of mine, we wrote a script and uh, to no surprise, uh, it's, it, it was a high script. Um, it was, it's, it's terrible. We looked at it a couple of years ago and it's, uh, um, you can tell us that it, it's, it's a victim of the time. It's, it's trying to be funny. It feels like a bad Judd Apatow produced, like, just reject that like Seth Rogen and Jason Siegel were like, this is, this is really offensive, dude. You should maybe, maybe rethink this. Like, it's just, it, it was not, it's, it's not good, you know, not like mean spirited or anything. It's just, it's, uh, it, it, it didn't age well. And it's not something that we will be, uh, pursuing by any means. So, um, from there, um, so, you know, I wrote a script and then I, I just really wanted to, to stay creative and, uh, I started, um, I transitioned over to novels and, uh, I wrote a couple and I hadn't even written like a short story. And when I wrote my first novel, I just wanted to just see if I could do it, I guess. And, you know, and, and, and I did, and that novel was, was fun. And, you know, my mom and my, my wife both really liked it, but that was kind of it. That's all uh, that matters, dude. That's all that matters, all right? Matters. Um, so then I wrote another one and, uh, you know, so for both of the first two, I, I did the whole find, you know, try to find an agent, send out the query letters, feedback. I probably queried over 200 agents between the two books and I never got a bite. Um, and I've always had this idea for a heist movie. Um, it was a movie at the time. It was going to be like a, like a script, another heist script. Um, but for a while I worked at uh, Stanley security. So, you know, Stanley and black and Decker, they have a security division and I was, a uh, I worked second shift there and, you know, you have access to all these codes and I was in, I was in Minnesota, but I was monitoring locations in, in California and, you know, you just kind of wander like, I have all these codes and stuff. What's to stop the wrong person from driving, right? Taking all these codes, driving, you know, through the middle of the night, cross country and, and robbing. Um, and so kind of a, an idea started to hatch from there about a filmmaker who couldn't get his film career going and was living at home <laughs> a little biographical um right you know taking these taking these um you know kind of planning a heist and he was going to plan it with you know some of his film school friends and then also some of the co colleagues that he worked with at security place and anyway it, it never really got past the kind of you know outline on you know the back of uh napkins during my lunch breaks because it was kind of hard well you can't really uh, root for people like this, right? That, that that's just kind of entitled people wanting to to make a live, you know, to to make a career in film. So, but I like the idea of this kind of filmmaker who would do whatever it could, whatever they could to to get their film career going. So I started um, watching heist movies um, to kind of just see what kind of story I wanted to tell, and got into really, you know, the revenge heist or. Uh, and that's where um, my first novel, which came out four months ago, uh, came from. It's called Breaking In. And it's the story of uh, a 17-year-old Millie Blumquist from Fargo, North Dakota. She goes to a film school in New York that has, it's like a film camp. It's like a 12-week like camp um, that's part of a larger academy. And they have a film competition where you go there, you submit a feature-length script, and then you make a short film, like 10-minute short film, based upon that script right um so i think about like whiplash right that was a short film yep. before it became mm -hmm. a movie um uh what's the one without with um what's her name brie larson um short term 12 i think that was a short film before it became a, a feature film so i was thinking kind of like that so there's a film competition uh so millie goes there but 
about four weeks before the the program is done, before she can finish her short film to submit, uh, the head of the school was this famous director, Ricky O'Neill. Uh, Ricky is charged with fraud. He's charged with stealing tuition um, from the students, overcharging, that kind of thing. The school shut down. Billy's sent home. Seven months later, she's in a movie theater. She looks up uh, to the coming attractions and she sees a preview uh, for a movie and it's her movie. Ricky has stolen her script. He's made the movie in the way that the school is set up. He can do that and doesn't have to give her credit. Uh, but he gives her $20,000 kind of in hush money to go away. And uh, instead of hushing up, she takes that 20000 and she turns her film crew into a heist crew. And they plan to steal the movie three days before the premiere. So that's what uh, that's what the book's about. And it's been out for uh, about four months now. And it's available uh, in audiobook too, which is fun because... Um, the narrators do accents for the for the people that live in Fargo, and it's it's pretty hilarious. So, have you always always wanted to be a writer? Is this something that you've always been passionate about, or what is the origin story for that? Yeah, I think I mean for me, I, I, I have always wanted. I've always been into reading. Like I was a reader at a young age, right? You know, like Laura Ingalls Wilder when I was in kindergarten and that kind of stuff. But then. We would always, so I live in Minnesota now, but we always lived out of state till about seventh grade, but we had a cabin up in Minnesota. That's pretty common for people around here. And so we would always travel up north uh, to spend like two weeks up at the cabin and I would bring a bunch of books. And that was kind of what we did. Like my parents all read books. So we all had to just kind of entertain ourselves. And most of the time we, we read books and I would finish my books by like day three or four and my parents didn't want to deal with me. So they gave me their books. So like in second grade, I read like Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. I read John Grisham's The Client. You know, I, I read these kind of more, you know, adult books. Uh, they were really just thrillers. And um, I love them. Like I, I couldn't read them. I couldn't read them fast enough. And um, so I think like, and I even started in first and second grade, started writing my own we had a really cool program uh, that my mom helped out with. She was the, the in-class mom and she would, uh, so all the students would write like these little short, short books. And then she would take them somewhere to get bounded. Right. And then we were going to illustrate them. So I wrote like a detective series when I was um, in second grade based upon, it was called like Sam, the detective. Sam was my dog and he was the case of the missing cats. Uh, I read all the Goosebump books, so I created my own series called Chills, which was very much a ripoff of Goosebumps, um, but was really heavy on gun violence. <laughs> I went back and I read it, and I was like, oh my gosh, definitely. Um, but I attribute that to watching Terminator 2 a lot with the neighbor kids. We we watch that movie all the time, and so there's there's a lot of guns in that. So, um, But yeah, I think just I always like love the idea of like telling stories and I don't know necessarily if I thought I had the um, the talents or probably the patience to write a novel. You know, you always hear like what an undertaking that is. And I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. But um, I've grown to love it. Like, it's just it's just my passion. You know, it's awesome that the book got published. Um, if it didn't, I, I mean, I, I'd still be writing every day. And that's that's what I do. It's just because that's that's what I enjoy. So it kind of just grew from from filmmaking and um just kind of still wanting to have that creative outlet. And um, I was on a uh, vacation in Alaska and I read uh, Hunger Games and Girl with the Dragon <laughs> Tattoo, which is just a really weird combo. Yeah. And then, but I remember like I got, I, I got, a, I got on the plane afterwards and I was like, I'm going to try to be a writer. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to try it once. And um, yeah, now here we are. For your style. Why, why heist? Why is that something that you are attracted to? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're having a whole conversation about Stanley Kubrick, but he's yeah. not necessarily recognized as a, a heist filmmaker. Not that right. that takes, you know, any, uh, any like sidesteps, but for somebody that is a writer, why, why heist? So for me, I, it kind of came down to number one, like what the objective was of, of this character, right? I knew that I had, I had a lot of, 
I don't know if it's anxiety or desire or combination mm-hmm. of both, you know, when I graduated, I would, you know, I tried anything I could to try to get my foot in the door. You know, I went to all these production offices with my reel. I, you know, I, I sent out my short films and, you know, really tried to, to get my name out there and, and, you know, it, it, it didn't work out and that's okay. I, I think it's, I think everything happened for a reason. I love being a novelist that really fits me better. And, but I had this desire to tell this, this story about this character and coming from this world. And I wanted to have it be a very kind of like an ensemble. Like it's very much Millie's story, but the, the, the novel is, uh, as a, you know, multiple POV. So you're in different characters at one, you know, towards the end, her high school gets up to, to nine people. And I just, I love movies and books that have kind of a, a, a large cast, if you will, of characters and they kind of bounce and feed off each other. Um, so I had all that and there's so much as I was just thinking about it and kind of looking into it, that filmmaking mirrors pulling off a heist, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody has their designated job. You have your mastermind, AKA your director, who's, you know, got the plan, the vision, telling all the different part- people what to do to, you know, achieve pulling off the job, whether or not that's a, a, a tricky, tricky, you know, long take or, shooting overnight a scene or, you know, robbing a jewelry store of, you know, millions of dollars in diamonds. Um, and I just, and, and there are, and this isn't totally my idea either. Like there are some YouTube, uh, cause I Googled this a lot <laughs> to see like who else is out there. Right. And there's some really good um, kind of essays on heists um, and filmmaking and YouTube stuff. But uh, I just thought it was so interesting just kind of how, how it mirrored and like, also through when I, as I was watching these heist movies or the just, you know, to kind of see what kind of script or a book I wanted to tell, you know, really the ones that, that resonated deeper with me were the ones of kind of those down on their luck, right? The kind of the underdog stories, you know, people that weren't planning on heist, you know, so they could, you know, they weren't taking their, their Dodge chargers and hooking them up to a, uh, you know, uh, a safe in, in, in Brazil and dragging it through the street, you know, and Fast Five is awesome, but I, I, I don't resonate with those movies as much as I do, you know, the uh, like out of sight, you know, um, kind of those great film. Uh, yeah, great film. You know, it's Soderbergh. I mean, you you mentioned real quickly, just, you know, Kubrick's not someone that really is like a heist director, like Soderbergh, like so is, you know, so much of his, what we really think his great films Um and also, I mean, of course, like Aaron Brockovich and stuff, but he did all the Oceans movies, Logan Lucky, Out of Sight. Um, anyway, but uh, so just for me, I think it was it was just kind of natural, uh, the story that I wanted to tell, and it would be a good kind of starter. And, and, and again, a blueprint, right? You know, it, it's, I think even though it wasn't a movie I was making, it still was my first intro, um, you know, to... Um, to find an audience and so I wanted it to be something that was familiar but I could put my own spin on it and I could do you know take tropes and you know have some things that you think you know what's going to happen and sometimes it does and sometimes it goes completely the other way and that's what's been most fun for me is people telling me you know like just about the surprises and the turns and also the wit and the humor about it so um, it just, it was a good kind of just starting point for me to, to kind of build upon this and then just kind of introduce myself as a, as a novelist to people and say, this is, these are the kind of stories I want to tell with these kind of characters. What do you want your reader to get out of, you know, your work? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is I know how many choices people have today. I know, right, to, to for entertainment. First and foremost, I want to be, I want them to be entertained. Um, but I also want them to, to kind of think about, I, I have a lot of diverse characters, um, kind of looking at things that maybe normally don't, don't get looked at. Um, you know, it's a story about a, you know, a, a young woman who wants to be a f- filmmaker and the obstacles that she faces and, you know, about a, uh, you know, a, a, big league director who steals her idea doesn't give her credit you know and this isn't you know it, it, it's not ironic or you know it's pointed out to me that you know today the the writers guild strike just just ended or is in negotiations right we're toward the end we're toward the end we'll toward find the out. end right yeah. we'll find out but 
you know, I mean, there's this kind of thing, you know, I mean, just a lot about that, right? About who owns the rights and who gets credit for what and in what medium and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I, I, I want the reader to kind of think about these kind of things and think about just kind of the, you know, the diverse characters and their point of view. But really, at the end of the day, I just wanted to, you know, to be a, a fun thriller that kind of just takes them away and, and, you know, that they can easily get involved in the book. 100 uh, percent. I don't even know if you really have broken down the film, but basically we've we have like this career criminal. Right. And he recruits a bunch of people and they've got this idea of this heist. And what would they do in, ev- in every other heist film? Uh, you know, like we have this perfect plan and things don't necessarily go according to plan. And mm. in the, the final act, fucking shit goes haywire. And and the people that we're rooting for, well, they all fucking die. Um, <laughs> I mean, a lot of them do. A lot of them do. A lot of them do. What I love about this movie is typically, and you know what? Uh, I'm trying not to spoil it. Like in many, many like heist films, I really hate all like all of our characters, but this (laughs) one's fun in the sense that I don't know. I am rooting for these like fucking like sack of suds in many ways, you know, like, I'm rooting for these people. Like, hopefully, hopefully things are going to go, like, according to plan. And I love, like, the voiceover narration in the movie. But, Mm -hmm. uh, like, every other heist film, yeah, it's not going to go the way that you want it to. Well, what I think is really interesting and what what reason why I kind of, I you know, when we first started talking and um, thought the killing would be a good kind of, you know, uh, focal point to tie into what my work's about, what I've been doing to, to get breaking in out is, so the killing is, it's, it's not considered like one of the first heist movies, but the fifties is really when the heist movie kind of took full, fully formed. And what I mean by that is, so they were, so the heist have been part of crime noir movies, you know, in the thirties and forties. Um, I think about like Robert Sodiak's uh, The Killers, um, which is based on our Ernest Hemingway novel. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great black and white movie. Um, and it's really about these shady characters, right? But there is a heist, but the heist is actually like, I think it's like two minutes. Like <laughs> it's one shot. It's a cool shot. It's a crane shot, which isn't bad for 1949. But, um, you know, it, it the movie doesn't center around it. And, so a lot of people say that uh, the Asphalt Jungle, which came out in 1950, is considered like the first technical heist movie because the whole thing features around uh, this heist. You've got everybody that's got a role. They've got their, you know, their specialties. It's what we think of today now when you go see a heist movie, right? You expect that kind of that montage of meeting all the characters and you know what's their specialty and how are they going to fit into the plan and that kind of thing. But um so the killing kind of falls into, uh, you know, it's only because this came out, what is it, 56? Yeah. Yeah. So six years after the Asphalt Jungle, you know, hits theaters. So mm. they probably started shooting this 55, 54, maybe. So you've barely got this kind of new genre, right, that's that's still forming. You've got a couple of movies that have come out. Um, one was called five against the house that would have came out, I think in 54, 55. And that's about college students robbing a, a, a casino. Um, and again, everything goes, goes to hell in that. And a lot of that actually had to do with kind of a moral code of ethics, at least in Britain, they had it where I think until like the sixties, they had to have the heist fail, um, because they didn't want people to think that this was a reputable way to make a living. <laughs> so they could tell a heist film, but it had to go to hell. I don't think we had that here in America, but um, still a lot of movies, they didn't work out. So what's interesting about The Killing is, so you've got this new fully formed genre, and they're already playing with it, right? They're already telling you from this diff- different point of view. And and for those that haven't seen it, so it's, it's a heist that takes place at a racetrack. And you actually kind of start, you know, with opening wide shots of the racetrack and you meet some of the characters and you start to see how it's going to happen. But then you go back in time and you learn like what a character did 
an hour before the before the heist, and then it keeps going, and then it flashes forward again from a different point of view, and then it goes back in time again. So you you piece together how it's going to come about and how all this works, and you know everybody that's that's you know taking place of it, um, but it's told in kind of a, a unique style for the time. Um, you know, these are things that have been. You know, we're talking almost 70 years ago. So yeah. now we're we're really familiar, right, with kind of heist films. And um, again, with Reservoir Dogs, you know, Tarantino, you have the opening scene at the, the cafe where they're all planning. They're talking about Madonna <laughs> and they're getting ready for the heist. And then you flash forward and, you know, somebody's been shot and the heist went to hell. And then you get through different points of view, backstory, what happened. Um, you know, and that was, I don't know, when was that? 93? It was like 40 years later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's like 47 years later. Um, you know, they took this idea and kind of this narrative style and, you know, Tarantino read, you know, did that. And everybody was like, oh my God, this is genius. And then really he's just doing Kubrick, but not even and like, he's you know, openly admitted, <laughs> like he openly admitted like, yeah, like he loved this film. Did he? Okay, cool. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, a lot of what he was doing for Reservoir Dogs was his version of just this film. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, whether you love him or you hate him, he's a filmmaker that he's an impressionist. Like he literally looks at the stuff that he's been inspired by and it's like, all right, I'm (laughs) going to do a version of this. Reservoir Dogs, he literally cites this movie as one of the biggest forms of his inspiration. Yeah, no, that I, I did not read that, but that checks out. <laughs> I mean, that you know, that's that's clear. And Tarantino, depending upon the film, he is one that I love. Um, but I just love his dialogue. I just, I just always get into it. Um, and once upon a time in Hollywood, I don't know, man. Every time I watch it, I, I like it more and more. I, I, I didn't really love it the first time, but, um, but yeah, he. They're like, oh my gosh, that's that's such a cool shot. He'd be like, yeah, it's a better shot in this and this and this, right? You know, and and I think that's what's what's fun, and you know, to a, to a little extent, I I do that uh, with my novel. I definitely cite a lot of influences, and if there are kind of there'll be references, and later on you'll see those references, kind of how they play out, sure. um, just because I think that's just kind of a. Um, a fun thing to do to, to kind of pay homage to the heist genre, which is, you know, what I feel the, the book does. But um, as far as the, the kind of killing goes, you know, you have, so, I mean, it is very much a, a, you know, even though it's starting to adapt the heist movie, like we think of today, it's still very much a, a you know, a low lighted black and white noir film, right? Mm-hmm. You got, you got tough guys, you know, you got two time and dames, <laughs> you got, you know, the good looking heavy, um, you know, you got the sad sap, George, George is my absolute favorite. I just love George and how he's Dude, always trying to impress his like, wife. I love, I love George. Um, what was it? He did an old freaking, what was it? Uh, a horror film, uh, the the haunting of Hill House, the house on Haunted Hill. Oh yeah, house on uh, Haunted Hill. Yeah, yeah, Haunted Hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved him. I loved him. I, like, I was, I remember, like, the first moment we, we saw him in the film, like, wait, I know this guy. I know this guy. Who the mm-hmm. fuck is this guy? And and then when I saw him getting, like, the once over by his wife, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, I know who he is. I know exactly <laughs> who he is. Uh, yeah. He always played a villain in the 50s. And uh, he was always, like, spurned. He was, like, forever spurned in mm-hmm. in everything that he did but yeah uh alicia cook loved him yeah and he's and and again this is something that i think we take for granted today having a diverse set of characters and you know but really so you've got him you know this this guy who's hanging out with these you know these crooks um so his character george he plays uh he's he's the teller um at the racetrack that's gonna going to help Johnny Clay played by Sterling Hayden. Um, and for those that don't, yeah, so for those that don't know Sterling Hayden, he is, I don't know how tall he is. He, 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 he's a big guy and he's got a deep voice and he's like, one. you know, 
he's the guy who who gets all the good one-liners. He's the guy who's going to, you know, pop somebody in the eye and, you know, kiss, <laughs> kiss the dame and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I mentioned, uh, asphalt jungle and he, he's in the asphalt jungle as well mm. and plays the, plays the muscle. And, um, yeah, so it's just, it's, I think that kind of ties into it as well is, is Kubrick saying, okay, I'm even going to take this same guy and what you think you're saying, and I'm going to kind of play around with it a little bit. And, you know, um, one of the special features on the, the stuff that I watched last week was saying how they did a, they did test readings and people were like really confused by this, like, you know, this different structure. And so Kubrick and the producer, they went into the, you know, and they, they rented an editing suite in New York and they edited about half of the movie to tell it linear. And they just stopped and they said, we hate this. This isn't what we want to do. We want to tell our story the way we want to. But anyway, just, you can't go wrong. If you do like heist movies and you like old, like kind of noir pictures, do an asphalt jungle, the killing double feature, make it a Sterling Hayden night. Um, Cause he really is, he really is fantastic. And he's a very interesting guy. There's a little bit of a documentary done on him um, that was included in the features on uh, the killing um, Blu-ray. And I don't know what exactly happened, but he, he basically got chewed up and spit out by Hollywood. He, he's not exactly bitter, but he's definitely not, you know, doesn't have fond memories of it. Um, so yeah, he's just kind of an interesting guy to, and, but man, he, he just commands the screen. Doesn't he? Whenever he's Dude, on, oh he my just, God. Oh. Um, he's fantastic. And uh, just for the listeners, uh, we're talking about uh, Sterling Hayden, uh, a myriad of other people in the film, Colleen Gray, Vince Edwards, uh, Jay Flippin, Alicia Cook, who we just mentioned as George, uh, a myriad of other people. But it's so funny because we look at a lot of actors that were around in the 1950s, 1960s. And the odd thing is like Alicia Cook might be the most recognizable, but you look at the, this is not a movie where the acting was like subpar. Everybody was great. And uh, Sterling Hayden to uh, put a like finer point on it was extremely, extremely well utilized. He commands every, to your point, like commands mm-hmm. every scene that he's in the movie uh, is well directed. The movie is well shot, but you you look at the talent. And you're like, wait, why is this guy not a Jimmy Stewart? Why is this guy not like he's or he he he's phenomenal. He, the performance yeah. is phenomenal. To your point of just kind of like ah, uh, just kind of like done over by the by the system. Like no, like the acting in this and the the final scene. Uh, with him and you know his girl when he's like all right i'm finally done and he's like oh fuck um it's 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 perfect because every heist movie you have to have that moment like that's the shitty thing about a heist film you always root you always root for well unless it's well maybe i i say always uh i always root for the crime like the crime guy and the guy like all right uh, the bad guy with a heart of gold. I'm always going right. to root for him. I'm always going to root for him. And then when shit happens, I'm like, ah, fuck. And, and this film, when you just watch $2 million being like blown away. Yeah. So, are we, yeah. so earlier you had said we didn't want to spoil because. No, no. Are we, fuck are it. We able the, to the yeah, yeah. 60 so, some odd years old. Yeah, We're going to so spoil the, it. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. The, the last shot is so he's he's. He's forced to flee. He takes his two million dollars. He puts it all in a suitcase, but it's a suitcase with a with a shitty lock. And as he's him and his girlfriend are waiting outside to go on the airplane, uh, you know the the um, the car with all the suitcases drive by. The suitcase falls off, and two million dollars goes up in the wind. So they you know they they take off, and one of the guys recognizes him. You know. And one of the guys that are working for the airline says, you know, to the cops that are there, it's that guy's uh, suitcase. And so the cops are coming out and he just turns around and just says, like, what's the difference? Like, I could run. But what's the difference? I think that's what he says. Right. That's how I always took it as like, what's the difference? Or, you know, why run? This is it. It's not going to work. I was doomed from the start. And I think, you know, that's just this guy's luck. And if anything, I think it's just like 
think he was just having kind of some fun with it, right? Just like planning this heist and like doing all this stuff and seeing how far he could get. And that's how I always kind of take it as, you know, he 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 wanted to see if he could get away with it, but he, he kind of knew he never was going to because it's alluded, and I didn't see this until I read the description, but he, he just got out of jail. He did like a five-year stint. Um, and I guess I always miss that part, but... Um, so, you know, he's a career criminal. He, 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 he's used to this. <laughs> he knows the rap. Um, but I want to go back to a point you were talking about earlier. Right. And just kind of like, he does command the the screen and like, why wasn't he a bigger kind of name? And, you know, I, I just, I, I wonder if it has something to do with, you know, how big of a presence he had in as far as kind of the, like that macho guy. Cause I know he did a lot of Westerns. Westerns were so popular, but like they kind of changed, right? I'm not totally an expert when it comes to like old Westerns, I, I admittedly, but like I think about, you know, like the spaghetti Westerns, I think about like Clint Eastwood. Mm. So you take like Clint Eastwood and this guy, right? And that's like, you know, that's like the Hulk before and after he hulks yeah. out, you know? Quite so I mean, just, yeah. yeah, just like in two kind of like in their stature. So, you know, I think just kind of the idea of maybe the, the leading man was. I don't want to say more relatable because I don't think Clint Eastwood, if anybody found him relatable, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's ever been said, but, um, he at least was relates to Clint. <laughs> yeah. He, but he wasn't like, at least as like as big, right. As, as, you know, as Sterling Hayden was, cause yeah, that guy's gotta be at least like six, five, six, yeah, six. He was, he, he was like yeah. a six foot five actor. Okay. And even yeah. in the film, like the way they even framed him, they recognized he was tall, but they still like framed him in a way to not make him look like he was six five. Mm-hmm. You know, just even the shots when they paired him with somebody, uh, they would pair him with somebody other tall, or they would have him by himself, and they would angle the camera to not make him look like a fucking like circus <laughs> clown, which Ogre. is weird, like, yeah. weird terminology. But no, he he was just he was, which is funny because of the fact that he ends up. Uh, like pretending to be a clown um like mm-hmm. he part of his whole thing was just to um you know just kind of um not stand out in many ways and that is a thing when you look at a lot of films is like oh we don't want to draw attention to somebody being kind of i don't know um different than everything else that we're that we're looking at and Mm -hmm. we even now you look at most actors generally speaking they want them to be within a certain frame site you know what i mean they don't Mm -hmm. want them to be super tall i'm 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 for the listeners you can't see what i'm doing (laughs) um but you want them to be within a framework and for you know for Sterling Hayden, he 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 didn't fit that mold. I mean, this is a man that he had his career. He passed at a relatively young age at seventy, but he was six five, which in the the fifties, that's a really tall fucking actor. That's a <laughs> really really big actor. Yeah. And what type of roles are you going to have that type of actor in? He's typically going to play a villain. You know, he's usually going to be a bad guy. He's going to play a villain. Yeah. You know, he's not going to generally be your 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 love interest because there's something kind of it, it, it when you're filming it, it seems a little bit off. So if you're a little bit off, well, you're going to be a villain or you're going to be um, at least then. Ah, you know what? Fuck it. Not even that. It's still a problem. If you're super tall, it's kind of weird. If you're an actor, like uh, being taller than the mainstream, and at six five in the 1950s, yeah, that was that that was that was a difference. Yeah, it didn't fit the package, right? Kind of what the 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 matinee good looks, you know. And I think that's what makes him so interesting to to watch. But at the same time, I can see why he might not have, you know, continued on and and. at first, the studio, and, and I don't think he was like a big draw either. Like at first, the studio, so United Artists put it out, and they, you know, at first they wanted a different. They asked Kubrick if they could get a different actor, um, and you know they stuck to their grounds. They got him, but they wouldn't give them 
the the full budget that they wanted. United Artists gave them two hundred thousand. They asked for something like three fifty. So they had to Kubrick and the producer had to raise the other one hundred fifty by themselves. And you know, basically, <laughs> the producer guy he says I had to raise the money. And what he did to raise the money was he had ninety thousand stored away, and then he asked his dad for the other fifty. Yeah. Regardless, yeah. he t- he took his own money. You know, he put this through. Um, but I can, you know, I, I just don't think that, you know, Sterling Hayden, again, really was just that kind of matinee uh, kind of idol that that people or, or, you know, actor that people, you know, totally went to go see. But that's what makes it so interesting, you know, in, in this movie and the other the other films that I've seen him in. Um, and one thing just to real quick, you know, we talked about. So this movie has a lot of influence on, you know, Quentin Tarantino. You had mentioned the clown mask that he puts on, that, that yes. Sterling Hayden puts on before he, he robs the the vault. And so for those, or probably most of the listening to this podcast that have seen the, the Dark Knights and you open on that bank heist with the Joker, he puts on yeah. that clown mask. It's that's a that's an homage to to the killing. Um, you know, that's that's very much um you know, kind of, kind of a nod. It, the the masks look different, but there's there's similar enough. Um, mm-hmm. so I just thought that was that was really interesting. And then, oh shoot, there's something else I was going to say as far as kind of influence, and I lost it. I, I love that you brought like the whole like Joker mask. Now, I do want to just even like casually uh, reference just uh, there was this whole like connection between Sterling Hayden and the Communist Party. Do you know about this? I don't, know. Yes. Well, maybe a little bit, but tell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, apparently there was a, at, at some point in the, the late 40s, there was a connection between Sterling Hayden and being a member of the, the Communist uh, Party. Um, listen, that is an era that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I know anything about. And for the listeners, if you want to do your own research, go for it. I'm not going to pretend that I know anything about it. That might have been a reason, you know, too, in the 50s, right? You know, with McCarthyism, you, you know, looking at maybe, you know, I don't know if he was exactly blacklisted. Now that you mentioned this in the, I think he talked a little bit about that in the, the snippet that I saw. Um, from his documentary in the seventies. And he was talking about how, you know, he did attend some, I think like a meeting, a couple meetings. He liked what he heard at first. He went back a few years later, didn't agree with it, dropped out, you know? And I think, um, you know, to which you will, you know, with that information, but it was something where, you know, we have tons of parties nowadays. And (laughs) if you want to call yourself, you know, a communist, okay, fine. Um, you know, but that's not something that would prevent you from being yeah. in movies or anything like that. I have this belief of just separating art from from individual beliefs. Like I'm never going to get into a uh, a deep dive conversation of Roman Polanski on, sure. on certain elements, and I'm just going to appreciate the art. But I I encourage anybody that is listening to do their own uh, their own digging, but. It's it's a fascinating conversation. And um history is a weird fucking thing, man. Like I I I can't pretend to know what what life looked like then. I I just I don't know. Um I'm a, a purist in the in the sense of like I like to watch a good story. I wanna watch popcorn. You know, like, well, I wanna eat popcorn, I wanna watch a good story, I wanna just see where this the, this art is going to take us and then dissect uh, the the relations uh, relationships that the characters have that we're watching them. But uh, I don't have a point. I'm just always often fascinated <laughs> that we use um, art as a way to make sense of the world around us. And it, it's, I don't know, it, 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 it's a fascinating thing to me. Well, that's what they always say, right? Like when, you know, the best fiction is a reflection on the modern world, right? You're taking the elements and those are your themes that you're putting into a story to, you know, to, to convey a story to, to the audience and kind of 
inevitably your thoughts, your beliefs are going to seep into that by how it ends, right? How, what, what morals your characters have, what, what issues you decide to, to partake in, you know? Um, for me, it was a lot, you know, with, with the book that I wrote, it was a lot to do with, you know, trying to break into this, this industry that is really tough. And, you know, that a lot of this has to do with the fact that those that are already in the industry will lie and cheat and steal and do whatever they can to stay in it and aren't, you know, totally welcoming to, to new voices to be heard and, and told, even though we live in a world today where we try to embrace that, you know, where there's, there's political movements, social media movements for that to happen, but it doesn't always take place. Um, so that was something for me, you know, that definitely, yeah. you know, it was always something I was obviously uh, aware of, but it's not until you write that first draft and, you know, kind of start to see like, oh, this is really what this story is about. This is what I'm trying to um, to reflect on. And I think that's just what, you know, any good any good story and, and horror, horror seems to really kind of pinpoint that most effectively in, in science fiction. Um, you know, I think about, um, this just popped in my mind, but, you know, the, the Watchmen series. Mm. Um, you know, on HBO, like, yeah. uh, you know, how many of us didn't know about, uh, the, the Tulsa riots, right. Um, you know, and, and I mean, that was new to me, you know, I'm embarrassed to say it, but that was nothing that was ever taught to me in, in, in Midwest school and public school. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Minnesota. Okay. Um, uh, I've traveled around a little bit. I lived in like Illinois for a while, but um yeah i mean that was that was like i learned about that and same as a lot of folks did you know through, through watching this uh the science fiction show <laughs> right you know and but i think taking historical context and putting it into today's world and what has changed evaluating what hasn't you know really kind of puts things in in perspective so you know i think that's just that has a lot to do with um you know kind of what you were saying about how art reflects, you know, those kind of those themes and those morales and, and things that need to be changed or evaluated, or maybe sometimes not even that, maybe just brought up to say, you know, what are, what is this? <laughs> right. Like this is yeah. what we have. This is what we're doing. I don't have an answer for this, but for no. God's sake, let's talk about it. Let's make sure these people are aware of this. For our listeners. How can we know more about you? Absolutely. So uh, you can just visit my website, tylerschwanke.com. Um, hit me up on, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make fun of myself for saying hit me up. And don't even edit that, edit that out. Keep that in there that I'm calling myself out that I said hit me up. You can <laughs> find me. I'm 38 years old. Don't hit me up for anything, okay? You can find me <laughs> on Instagram, on Facebook. <laughs> on X, Twitter, whatever, um, or just go to my website, you know, and then the main, you know, main thing is my book is available wherever fine books are sold. So you can get it on audible, you can get it on Amazon you can get it Barnes and Noble. Um, I always encourage people to support their, you know, favorite local indie bookshop, um, you know, and they can, if they don't carry it, they can order it for you. They can get it in in less than a week. Um, they would be they would be happy to. So those are different ways to, to check out the book if you you know think it sounds interesting and then you know certainly follow me and I would love um, if you like the book leave a review um, but also feel free on my website you can reach out to me and just let me know a couple of people have done that and it's been a lot of fun to kind of hear you know just about the different things they like about the book and um, you know also some new heist movies they haven't checked out before. Tyler, oh my God, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. I want to welcome you anytime you want to come back. Uh, this is my first conversation with you, so I'm always a little bit like herky-jerky, <laughs> but this has been so much fun. So thank you, and to the listeners, please uh, check out Tyler's work, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Have a good night. Again, thank you to Tyler for hopping on the podcast. I had a wonderful uh, conversation with him. Uh, dude definitely knows his stuff. And to the listener, if you haven't seen it again, please check it out. Check out Tyler's uh, his his novel Breaking In, which he you know cites in the conversation. 
And if you're still listening to the podcast at, at this point, if you're new to the show, definitely subscribe, tell your friends, all those wonderful things. You can visit my website, stampercinema.com. Uh, if you check out the show notes, I will have links to Tyler's um, website as well as social media. I'll have links to my social media. I'll also have a couple links to some of the things that we mentioned, i.e. Uh, the, the Communist Party stuff, uh, i.e. The, the Quentin Tarantino uh, discussion piece where he where he cites the killing as one of his forms of inspiration for Reservoir Dogs. But I think that's about it for this week. I will be back really soon. We are now in December, and I've got a few episodes that I need to get out to you. Again, I took November off. Uh, the, uh, the the family was struck by a myriad of different little uh, setbacks, whether like health and, well, holidays and, and traveling. And anyway, I got to get caught up. So December is going to be really exciting. And I think we're kicking off with a bang, no pun intended, uh, by discussing the killing, uh, the killing. Uh, the killing, but I'm excited. Uh, enjoy this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode, but enjoy the ones that we've got coming out before the end of the year, because season four is almost over. But before we close out the year, I do have a few more things for you. So be on the lookout for those. But until next time, this is Andrew signing off with Stanford Cinema. Cinema.